For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a doctor tells about his personal confrontation with breast cancer on Voices for the Cure. Learn why a sycamore tree on the University of Arizona campus is a symbol of space exploration. Tucson author Jillian Cantor shares the history behind her newest novel, The Hours Count. And Beth Serdit pays attention to her favorite creature, the raven. Those stories are coming up next on Arizona Spotlight. It's a diagnosis no one wants, but an estimated 1.3 million people must face every year. Breast cancer is the most prevalent cancer in the world. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and Voices for the Cure lets those whose lives have been touched by breast cancer share stories of courage, love, and hope. When breast cancer strikes, even someone with a physician's training may have to go through a process of acceptance to face the facts and men need to be just as vigilant as women for early warning signs. Breast cancer survivor Marty Giles went through the most difficult experience of his life nearly 14 years ago. Marty and his wife Robin shared their story with us in 2011. So, Marty, when were you first diagnosed with breast cancer? I think I was 33 at the time. And how did you discover that you had a problem? You discovered it. We were lying in bed and you wondered what this lump was under my breast. And I remember uh, trying to think that it was really nothing uh, serious. I think at that point, I remember thinking, hmm, that doesn't really feel quite right. Because in my line of work, I uh, happen to feel a lot of breasts. I'm a woman's health nurse practitioner. And my first thought was that it felt very firm and irregular. And I think you were a little reluctant to agree with me. Would you agree with that? No, I think um, I knew it. I knew it didn't feel right either. But I believe I was in a bit of denial. You know, I it did definitely felt unusual. Um, I think part of the denial was thinking that being a male, that you know, I'm sure it wasn't going to be anything serious. Perhaps a benign lump. But I think after a day or two of thinking about it, I came to the conclusion that it probably wasn't something benign. Um, I remember that I think you were trying to take care of everything without letting me know what you were doing because I don't think you wanted me to worry. Um, And you called me on the phone and you told me that you had had the biopsy and that it wasn't good news. And I was, I think I was also in shock. Um, We had a baby. And our, our older child, Molly, was, uh, she was just uh, under six. She was five. And um, I remember thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to do with these two kids and, um, and a sick husband? I thought, how am I going to be able to cope with all of this? And I think after the shock of it wore off, it was pretty obvious to me that, you know, when you're diagnosed, you have one chance to be really aggressive with your treatment. So, you know, it became obvious that I wanted to do everything possible to, uh, to you know, to reduce my, my risk 
of recurrence or not surviving. Do you remember um, going into the hospital and um, having your uh, mastectomy and, and the, uh, the fear of having uh, that surgery? Oh, yeah. You know, I was uh, eager to get the surgery done so I could at least get some information as to where I stood. But, uh, you know, I think deep down there's always that fear that, uh, that the prognosis wasn't going to be so good. When you, had your, um, when you had your meeting with your oncologist, do you remember waiting in the waiting room? I think that was such a hard thing for me because I was in the waiting room with you and we were young and we felt healthy and active and we were looking around at all these people who were, you know, bald from chemo or carrying around IV pumps or um, just looking really unhealthy. And I was thinking, we are in the wrong waiting room. We should not be here. Do you remember that? I do remember. I think uh, the whole thing is pretty odd to begin with, to, to uh, being a male and having breast cancer, which is, you know, most people think of as female-only disease and being in a room full of women and everybody looking at you wondering what you're doing here and probably thinking that we were there for you and not for me. And um, But I wasn't actually scared. And uh, when you talk about the treatment um, after your lumpectomy and then your mastectomy, the next thing you did was um, chemotherapy. Yeah, I did um, six cycles of chemo, three weeks apart. So it was a total of 18 weeks, every three weeks on Friday. Right. I think um, there's some days now where we go by and we, we kind of, we don't even think about the cancer. Uh, for sure. For me, I try not to think about it. It's... Um, you know, it's it's just difficult to talk about. We haven't really talked much about our kids, and um, I, I kind of wish that Molly was here since she's 16, and uh, you know, she's she was old enough to remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and Zach, he's he's now just 11, and so he was he he obviously was too young. He was um, just turning one to remember, you know, going through treatment and things. But he has he has seen pictures, and he sees your your scars and your radiation. Mark and your tattoos, so he, and we obviously have talked about it, so I think he has some understanding um, of what happened, but how do you think it's impacted our kids? They're definitely uh, sensitive to other people's feelings and emotions, and I would imagine that, uh, you know, I'd li- I would like to think that's part of our parenting, but uh, I would imagine that going through What I did for them probably made them more aware. Today, Robin and Marty Giles are advocates for a healthy lifestyle as a way to reduce breast cancer risk. Together, they will lead the Riders for the Cure team next month as part of El Tour de Tucson. Voices for the Cure is produced in cooperation with Susan G. Komen for the Cure, Southern Arizona. More stories are on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. In 1971, Apollo 14 went to the moon, and a tiny piece of that mission is a living part of the University of Arizona landscape. That's because astronaut and command pilot Stuart Rusa 
conducted experiments on about 500 tree seeds to study the effect of weightlessness on germination. An American sycamore tree grown from one of Roos's seedlings was planted between the Flandreau Science Center and the Kuiper Space Sciences Building in 1976. Next, Sarah Hammond talks with Stuart Roos's son, Jack, a retired Air Force pilot and space enthusiast, about his father's mission to the moon. One of my earliest recollections was my father was an experimental test pilot out at Edwards Air Force Base, close to the Mojave Desert. And uh, I remember my dad working very hard as an experimental test pilot. And that was really the stepping stone to NASA. At that time, NASA really, even though I don't think it was a, a formal requirement, they were really looking for experimental test pilots. So he got picked up, and we moved to Houston in 1966 uh, when he joined the program. In 1969, Al Shepard came to him and said, guess what, We're on the, we've been selected as the prime crew for Apollo 13. After uh, a few months of debate, they were swapped to the Apollo 14 crew. The Apollo 13 crew, they did, just did a one-for-one swap. And then in 1971, he went to the moon on board Apollo 14. And what was it like living in that space astronaut community as a child? Yeah, that was very interesting because uh, at the time, it was an influx of folks supporting the the NASA program, all the way from the astronauts to the engineering to the scientists to all the support that's required. That area of Houston, the Seabrook, uh, Clear Lake area, was just, just boomed. Your next-door neighbor could have been another astronaut. It could have been uh, an individual working on the support crew. So there was a huge focus on on NASA and the space program at that point. And so when we moved there in the mid-'60s, we were just finishing up the Gemini program, and the focus was on Apollo. So I would say it was unique in the sense that everybody was mission-focused. But when you went to school, it was just a bunch of school kids because there was no one special, uh, no one better than the next. And, you know, at 10 years old, uh, which is how old I was when my father flew to the moon, you have the view of a 10-year-old. And so you really don't understand the significance, like I do today, of what was going on. But there was a lot of folks in the same boat, all focused on the same, the same objective. But for the Rusa family, at some point in time, you knew your dad was going to go to the moon. Yes. What was that realization like, and how do you reflect back on that? So, again, as a 10-year-old, you know something is special. But you've been living right next to the Armstrong kids and, and the Yaldrin kids and so forth. So you got to see how some of the other kids reacted and responded and so forth and what they went through. So we, being my, my brothers and sister had somewhat of an expectation or, or um, a preview of what to expect, but we knew something was special. When you're named for a, a crew, your dad goes into an intense training period. So my dad was gone a lot, uh, basically from Monday to Friday every week uh, throughout the year. So I, I missed my dad, but I also understood even at 10 years old of what he was, what he was focused on, and that became kind of the accepted way of growing up. And then as you get closer to the launch, you can feel the anticipation. The press starts to show up. They start camping out on your front lawn. Uh, so then things started to change a little bit, and, and, and I noticed that. And then the, they're in orbit. Ed and, and Al head to the surface of the moon. Your dad's in the command module. He has some scientific experiments. What do you know about the science that he was performing? 
what was different about Apollo 14 than some of the previous Apollo missions was it was it was declared the first scientific specific uh, mission. And what I mean by that is they they had 18 dedicated either experiments, observations, or demonstrations that they were to complete. And so a lot of those fell to my father as he's in uh, lunar orbit. Again, like you mentioned, he's all by himself circling the moon while Ed Mitchell and Alan Shepard are down on the, uh, on the surface of the moon. And he was tasked with photographing the possible areas for the Apollo 16 landing. So he said it was incredibly busy uh, when he was in lunar orbit. So the tree seeds were one of the experiments, and he probably didn't have a lot to do with them. They were carried to the moon, uh, circled, and came back. But let's talk about the the moon tree experiment. Yeah, that's actually a fascinating story. And as you say, it's now developed into the moon tree. And there's a little bit of mystery still involved with this uh, in, in the fact that the two individuals primarily responsible have passed away. Stan Krugman, who was uh, worked for the Forest Service, contacted my father, who in his earlier uh, youth between high school and, and uh, in, in his college days actually worked for the Forest Service. Stan contacted my dad and said, hey, what, what would you think about flying some tree seeds to the moon? And instantly, my father picked up at that because of his Forest Service background, before because of his, his love of nature and so forth, it made total sense to him. And so each astronaut is giving um, a, a PPK, a personal preference uh, kit. And these are, for lack of a better term, like, like a small grocery sack that can seal, and you could pack whatever you wanted into, into those PPKs. So my father took a little metal tube. It was six inches by three inches and packed it full of seeds. Stan sent him the seeds, and off they went up into uh, up into orbit to the moon. And when they came back, uh, they were sent over to New Orleans to, to germinate. They did have a, a near scare where over the weekend the temperature went up, uh, and they were afraid that most of the seeds died. However, the Forest Service did a great job, and they, they actually managed to save most of those seeds, and they started to sprout. And then as we approached 1976, and for those that were around during that time, that was the bicentennial of the United States. And NASA and my father thought it would be a good idea to, to take some of those moon trees and start to plant those in ceremonies around the United States uh, as part of the bicentennial uh, celebrations. The first one being planted at Independence Park in, in Philadelphia. Unfortunately, that tree has now died. But that was the first tree planted in an official ceremony. President Ford sent a note for the planting. And then for the next year or so, my father actually went around the country dedicating these, these trees to either universities or, or uh, other uh, entities that either supported the space program or had some type of interest in, in receiving one of the trees. Did he plant the one here in Tucson? You know, that's part of the mystery, and I would love to know the answer to that. So we're going to talk about that uh, maybe in the in the moon tree ceremony of the total journey from the concept up until to the moon tree out here. Uh, I understand it was it was planted in 1976. I don't know the details of of the who and the why and the when. Uh, I don't know if my father was there or not. As I said earlier, he went to the University of Arizona, so there is a tie there. But it's interesting, and right now it's a mystery, and I would love to know the answer to that mystery. Maybe someone has the answer who's listening to us, right? Yes. The U of A's Lunar and Planetary Laboratory will celebrate the Moon Tree on October 30th. 
Jack Russo will share stories of his dad at 4.30 p.m. at the Kuiper Space Sciences Building at 1629 East University Boulevard. Tucson-based author Jillian Cantor has let history guide her fiction. Her novel, Margot, imagined an alternate life story for Anne Frank's older sister, if she had survived the Holocaust. Cantor's latest work is The Hour's Count, in which she uses the true story of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg's arrest and execution for espionage as the backdrop to tell a story about the Rosenberg's neighbors, a young Jewish family in 1950s New York. Next, Jillian Cantor reads an excerpt from The Hour's Count. The first time I ever saw Ethel Rosenberg, she was round and bright as a beach ball. She stood on the sidewalk in front of our building at 10 Monroe Street in Knickerbocker Village, clutching a bouquet of yellow roses in one hand, her little boy in the other, and despite all her brightness and girth, I might not have even noticed her at all if it hadn't been for David who decided at the very moment we walked by her to reach up and swipe the roses from her hand. I saw them in a blur, yellow and green flashes tumbling all over the sidewalk, and then Ethel let out a short, startled cry. David, I yelled at him, realizing what he'd done. What's wrong with you? David was almost two, but he wasn't prone to tantrums, fits of rage, or grabbing things from strangers on the street. But then I realized what it was, the yellow, David was recently infatuated with the color, drawing circles for hours with his yellow crayons. Sons, I would tell him, begging him to repeat the word after me, but he kept drawing his yellow circles without even the slightest sound. I bent down to gather up the flowers, and I noticed David was crying silently. He hated it when I yelled at him, and I immediately felt bad for being so cross. It was exactly what Dr. Greenberg had told me not to do, and here I was, doing it anyway. I'm so sorry, I murmured, handing Ethel back her flowers. He didn't mean to. Yes, he did, her little boy shot back at me. I judged him to be older than David, though I couldn't be sure how much. And he spoke to me like that, so clearly and completely, and rudely. I nodded at him. David had meant to, but what else was there to say? We had lived on Monroe Street only a week by then, David, Ed, and I, and I had thought, however stupidly at the time, that it might change us. The outdoor playground, the scores of other children, the loving families that nested all about Knickerbocker Village like indigenous birds, that somehow we would become shiny like all the rest of them, just by virtue of living here. But aside from the steam heat, the laundry room, and the elevators, Nothing was different in Knickerbocker Village than it had been in our efficiency above my mother's apartment on Delancey Street. It's all right, Ethel said. They're only flowers, and you've gathered them all back up. No harm done, see, John? She handed the bouquet to her boy, and she turned back to me. She patted David on the head, and his sobs worsened, shaking his shoulders, but he still did not make a sound. You're new around here, she asked, turning back toward me, her voice clear and sweet now. I hugged David close to my hip, 
willing him to stop so that we might have a moment to befriend someone in the building. So far, the other mothers at the playground had eyed me and David with trepidation. And why shouldn't they, when David would only sit by himself, silently stacking rocks in even piles, while all the other children laughed and shouted and ran around the courtyard together? I'm Millie Stein. I reached out for her hand to shake it. And this is my son, David. Her grip was firm, but delicate, yet her fingers looked decidedly swollen, like the kosher sausages Mr. Bergman sold in the butcher shop. Millie, she said, nice to meet you. I'm Ethel Rosenberg, and this is John. You live here, in Knickerbocker Village, I asked her. I haven't seen you at the playground yet. She looked down. We don't get to the playground too often these days, she said softly. I assumed it was because of her large, heaving belly, her being so firmly in the family way, about eight months along, I judged, remembering how uncomfortable I'd been at that stage, and trying to imagine feeling that way with another child to tote along. But at the mention of the word playground, John suddenly clung to Ethel's bright dress, twisting it between his fingers. I want to go to the playground, he whined. Ethel shook her head and he began to cry. Not the way David cried, silently, but loud, disturbing cries, reminding me of the feral cats that used to run around outside our apartment on Delancey, howling at all hours of the night in hunger or pain. Ethel offered me a fleeting smile, and then she quickly pulled John and her round body back toward our building. I've got to get him inside, but maybe I'll see you around, she called over her shoulder. I could hear John crying, even after she walked inside, the sound coming through the brick walls like a siren. David, however, had stopped. His eyes followed after them with what I imagined to be curiosity. Jillian Cantor read from her novel, The Hours Count, which has just been published by Riverhead Books. Artist and writer Beth Surtit listens to ravens and is paddled with alligators in wild and scenic places. She also knows that true adventure can be found in your yard, right above your head. If you talk to the animals, they will talk with you, and you will know each other, said Chief Dan George. I know. Ravens love junk food, and they can even recognize a fast food logo. I'm pickier than those clever corvids, common or chihuahuan, who I think of as equal opportunity eaters. Even knowing that eating almost anything helps sustain their big brains, I just can't bring myself to feed them patties of processed animal parts. Usually, I don't put out any food, but one day I place two uncooked whole chicken eggs, free range, of course, on the lava rock watering hole in the garden. The next morning, just as I got out of the shower, I heard gleeful quarks and gurgles through the window. Two huge ravens were sharing the eggs I'd put out for them, feathers glowing like abalone in the cool sunlight. They nibbled and chatted. After that, the one I call the egg thief swooped in at least once a day to check on the chicken egg situation. 
Even in winds so brisk, the house howled like La Llorona, mourning her children. He took one perfect egg in his beak and brought it over to his mate, who hopped impatiently in the desert. Raven's mate for life, so this guy was taken. But soon the single ones showed up, sometimes solo, other times in rowdy groups. The eggs were the main prize for the ravens, but from what I can see, some of my neighbors are fueled by the snack food industry. Fierce winds slammed open the lid of their trash can and tossed the contents as joyously as fans throwing underwear at rock stars. Plastic bags caught in the prickly embrace of Choya wave like surrender flags. A large empty Doritos bag, bright as a macaw, flutters its colors as the wind bounces it repeatedly against the bottom of the wall outside my studio. As I bend over to retrieve the bag, I hear big wings pushing the air, and then a soft as Raven flies close over my head. I stand and wave the bag. Raven circles, feet tucked up neatly. He vocalizes. Not cluck. It sounds more like a gentle tick-tock, slightly seductive, longing as if saying, Oh, I want that. Please give it to me. The wind revs its engines and drives me into the studio. Still clutching the bag, I touch the tip of my tongue to the roof of my mouth and let it stick for a nanosecond, then repeat. I practice as I sit down at my work table to draw a raven. I say to myself, ready for our next conversation, but not today. Alarm calls from smaller songbirds tell me that Raven is trying to steal babies or eggs from a nest. The screeches escalate as more birds join in to mob Raven, who decides that this is too much work and takes off. We'll chat another time, Raven and I, especially if I put out more chicken eggs or a bag of chips. Have a banana. Hannah, try the salami, Tommy, give it the gravy, Davey, everybody eats when they come to my house. Try With her illustrations and observations, Beth Serdit invites you to pay attention to the critters that crawl, fly, and skitter in your neighborhood. You can see her portraits of ravens and find more stories on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. <laughs>